I'm Nicole Antoinette, and this is Real Talk Radio, a podcast filled with honest conversations about everything. In today's episode, I'm joined for a second time by National Geographic Adventurer of the Year, Heather Anderson, known as a niche on trail, the only woman who has completed the Appalachian, Pacific Crest, and Continental Divide National Scenic Trails three times each. This includes her historic calendar year Triple Crown hike in 2018, when she hiked all three of those trails in one March to November season, making her the first woman to do so. Since 2003, she has logged over 40,000 foot miles, including 15 through hikes and many ultra marathons. Heather's here today to share stories with us from her 2015 record-setting hike on the Appalachian Trail, which is chronicled in her new book, Mud Rocks Blazes, Letting Go on the Appalachian Trail. Some terms you'll hear again and again in this conversation are PCT, short for Pacific Crest Trail, AT, short for Appalachian Trail, and FKT, short for Fastest Known Time. Speaking of fastest known times, in 2015, Heather broke the record for the self-supported fastest known time on the Appalachian Trail, and this conversation is all about that epic adventure. We talk about why she went after the record, the difference between trying to prove something to others versus trying to prove something to yourself, what a day in the life of a record-setting hike looks like for her, how she thinks about when to push and when to quit, as well as the measuring metric that she used on this hike, the question of, have I done my best today? I love talking with Heather about these wild treks, and I hope that you enjoy it just as much. And huge thanks to my Patreon community, a group of 400-plus people who make it possible for me to create this 100% listener-funded show with no ads or sponsors where all guests get paid. If you love these conversations, if you believe in paying creatives for their work, and if you've been craving a community of like-minded people, I bet that you would love our Patreon community. It isn't just a funding source for this podcast. It is so much more. We have a Discord community so folks can chat with each other. We have small group live virtual hangouts. I host a live reflection and journaling circle on the last Sunday of every month. That's a lot of fun and so much more. And we operate on a sliding scale, where all tiers get access to absolutely everything, regardless of how much you're able to pay. And you can find out more about that and everything that we do at patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. That's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. And I thank you so much for making these conversations possible. And now, on to the show. All right, we are good to go. Heather, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. I have to tell you, so I binge read your new book. Like I think, I mean, I maybe read it in like a day, maybe a day and a half. And the whole time I'm like live texting my partner about it, who is also a long distance hiker. He and I met on the PCT. He actually met you briefly when you were on this AT hike. Um, oh, cool. up, I think in Vermont. Oh, okay. And as I read, as I read your book, like when I got to some of what to me were like the most astonishing parts, I was basically just like texting him in all caps, like the part where you were like, it had been 800 miles since my last and only shower. And I was like, oh my God, she hasn't showered in 800 miles. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. And and the, the other part, I think the part where I basically just sent him a bunch of nonsensical emojis was when you were reflecting back on your PCT hike, which we talked about last time you were on the show, and you were talking about how dry it was mm-hmm. and how you were getting nosebleeds so bad every day that you would just tip your head back and like drink your own blood until you almost felt like you were going to vomit. And I texted him and I was like, we are not this hard. There is no <laughs> scenario in the world where I am drinking my own nosebleed <laughs> blood for date. Like, I'm done. I'm quitting. I'm out. So... <laughs> 
your ability to uh, choose and commit to your own suffering is beyond. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. When I was a little kid, they always said, you know, tip your nose back when you have a nosebleed. So that was what I was doing. I don't know. I, oh my God. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's pretty gross. No, it's great. It's great. It's fantastic. Um, tell me the note-taking process for writing a book like this, because it's, I mean, you're almost hour by hour recall and detail is so fantastic. And I can't imagine taking those kind of notes while so exhausted. Yeah. Um, so I didn't really take notes and uh, it's kind of the same like on my PCT hike. I did journal a little bit here and there for thirst, but most of what I write is from memory and uh, my husband will tell anyone that I have a ridiculously thorough and accurate memory. Um, he's always like really, I think frustrated by it because like, it's not like a photographic memory per se, but it's pretty close. So I can remember in a lot of detail and I don't know, I feel like, you know, you probably have experienced this like as a, a long distance hiker, like because every day is so full. Like if you're remembering one moment on the trail, you can be like, Oh yeah, that was right before I did this. And then, then I did that. And then I camped there that night. And then what did I do the next morning? And like through kind of that process, you can retrace like a lot of your hike, like just in your own mind by correlation of events that followed one another. And so a lot of that, you know, when I was writing mud rocks blazes, I was just scrolling through my gut hook app along the trail and being like, oh, yeah, at that place, I did this. And at this place, I did that. So that helped me with like recall for sure. Yeah, I, I think that's fascinating. I yeah, there's definitely some stuff from hikes of mine that stands out in my memory. But I don't know that I have that, that detailed of a recall. I mean, I suppose it probably helped that this wasn't your first time on this trail. Right. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's definitely like familiarity that comes from repetition. And, and also, I think too. um, um I think this is like tying in kind of with like our primitive selves to some extent, like, you know, the more intense of something is um, the more like neural connections you're going to make to what's going on. And uh, your body is remembering things that were painful or pleasurable or safe or, you know, and it's making these connections and it's tying them into places. And so I think in a lot of ways, my memory actually improves on trail for trail specific things. Like I can still like go hike the AT and point out places I slept, you know, six years ago. <laughs> like, oh yeah, I camped there, mm -hmm. you know, and it's just like things like that, you know. Yeah. Being able to have like that level of detail. Yeah. I get it completely. Well, yeah, that was one of the things I wanted to ask you. I was like, man, this is so detailed. <laughs> um, I know this is potentially like jumping around a little bit, and I think that we will do that going like forward and backwards in time. But the other thing kind of off the top that I wanted to ask you about, I was really surprised when you shared that you weren't going to be calling home during the hike, mm -hmm. that you weren't going to call home until the hike was done. I don't know. In my mind, I envisioned, you know, the calls home to be like a big emotional support or, and maybe that was just me projecting something that I was going to do, but will you talk about that decision? Why didn't you want to call or why'd you, why didn't you want to call home during the hike? So there were several uh, reasons on my um, FKT on the Pacific Crash Trail. I did call home and I called home often, just basically anytime I had cell phone reception, I called my mom and talk to her. And my mom is somebody who talks a lot. And so like, you know, I would end up losing, you know, time to phone call. And then 
it drains your phone and then you have to sit in town an equal amount of time to charge your battery. And, and since an FKT is all about time, you know, I was being as judicious as possible with the battery of my phone. So making extraneous phone calls, you know, was one way to like make my battery last longer. It was a very pragmatic thing. And, um, secondarily, you know, and, and I talk about this in the book, my mom had a stroke rape, um, a couple months before I started hiking and my dad never talked on the phone and my mom couldn't talk on the phone when I left. So there really was no reason to call home other than I knew that if something happened that I needed to know about, my sister would call me. And so I knew that if I didn't hear anything from them, then everything was fine. And that if I called home, it would probably just be difficult and it would take away a lot of emotional energy. And I knew that I needed to invest all of my physical, mental, and emotional energy into what I was doing if I was going to be successful. Yeah. That mix of what you just shared, pragmatic reasons and emotional reasons. I mean, it, it makes complete sense for sure, especially like you said, with your mom having had the stroke. I just, yeah, when I read that, I was like, oh, wow, that's, that is commitment, not calling home mm-hmm. <laughs> to, to, to the task at hand. Yeah. Yeah. So going back in time, um, the PCT, FKT, obviously, that's what we talked about um, when you were on the show last time. And so take me back. You know, you've finished that. You've done that successfully. It's this big deal. And in the book, you talk about how everyone that you met or talked to around that time was really asking what's next, right? This idea that you owed the world something or an encore of sorts. Mm -hmm. Let's start there. How did that feel to be seemingly defined by this one thing that you had done? Honestly, it just felt really awful. (laughs) Uh, It seemed as though it reinforced the idea that I was never going to be enough. Because here I had done this thing that I felt like was like earth shatteringly difficult. I had learned so much about myself. I was so much stronger than I thought that I was. You know, I had completely, I felt like reinvented myself. And now everybody was like, well, now what? Like, what's next? And not like, that's amazing. And like, rest in that. It was, well, now what? What are you going to do now? It's, you know, reinforcing this idea that like, no matter what I achieved, no matter what I did, I was never going to be enough for anyone. And, you know, that definitely tied into a lot of my self-esteem issues and baggage that I had from childhood of not ever being enough or, or being good at anything or being adequate. And, you know, it was really, really terrible, a really terrible period in my life. And it's funny because people probably assumed that I felt great because I had just achieved this big thing, but really I felt um, confused and, and hurt. And it was hard too because of, of a lot of the responses that I got. I mean, this is kind of unrelated to what you asked, but it's along the same thing. So like my entire life, you know, I had struggled with body image and, and disordered eating and, and all of this stuff. And when I finished the PCT, I was extremely emaciated. I was very unhealthy. I had lost, you know, 8% of my body fat. Like I was skeletal and basically everybody told me how great I looked. And I knew I was the unhealthiest I had ever been in my life. And I was like dangerously thin and unhealthy. And so here I was, it was like the most horrible thing that can ever happen mentally to somebody who struggles with body image and eating disorders and things like that. Because I was being reinforced that, oh, now you look great. And oh, now you need to do more. You know, these are these twin aspects of 
you know, you were not enough before and you're still not enough because what are you going to do next? Yeah, that's an unbelievable weight to put on someone. This idea, we like you said, first of all, reinforcing, um, you know, disordered eating, all that. Like that's its that's its own thing, right? right? That I think could be damaging, like just on its own. And then also this thing of you've done this incredible thing that maybe no one else thought you could do, that maybe you didn't think that you could do, and it's like. I, I, and obviously we're talking about this in the context of a hike, but I feel like there's so much that relates to all other areas of our lives. This just sort of like relentless goal pursuit that you're only as good as like the current thing that you're working on and you always have to be going. Like, when do we get a chance to just like rest actually and like celebrate yeah. the things that we have done? Or I know there's something in that that feels inherently like really destructive to me. Yeah, very much so. And, and you know, while I was in the midst of it, I could tell that it was wrong but I couldn't sort out exactly why. I mean, I was sorting through a lot at that time and um, it's only like retrospectively. And a lot of it was like what I processed on the Appalachian trail two years later, a lot of what is in mud rocks blazes. I was finally able to look back at that period and at that, you know, turmoil before, during and after my PCT hike and recognize the unhealthy patterns, the things that were being reinforced and, you know, find my way through it. Because, you know, it was just such a, a maelstrom of like negative, you know, mental m- impact on me. You know, it's like I didn't get a chance to celebrate what I had done and just be like, yeah, I did that. That was awesome. That's great. Yeah. Well, and it's like if we're if we're only being celebrated for our results, then it's really easy to put ourselves in that feedback loop of, oh, if I do another like big thing or if I impress people the way that they want me to or if I behave the way people want me to, then I'm going to get adoration or acceptance or and it just let I don't know. We like it's, I, I'm speaking for myself. It can be very easy to get caught in that trap of people like when I do X. So let me just do more of whatever X is. Right. Yeah. We're very, very conditioned to continue to perform you know, to, to receive attention, accolades, you know, approval, whatever. And it's in all aspects of our life from the time we're children and never really like getting a chance to, yeah, like rest in, in what you're doing and it's like constantly moving on to the next thing. And I think that that's very damaging psychologically for us, you know, like a big part of what I've been doing in my personal life this last year and a half or so has been focusing on cultivating mindfulness you know, and, and meditation and really reorient, reorienting myself to be in the present, you know, because in the past, like the only time I was in the present was on the trail. And as soon as I was off the trail, I was planning the next trail to get to the next presence that I could enjoy. And um, yeah, it's definitely like a, a, a constant, con- constant cycle of the future, the future, the future instead of the present, which is the only part that matters. Yeah, I would love if we have time later to come back to the meditation practice because I'm I'm definitely interested in that. But sticking with um, sort of this theme of the world seems to think you owe them an encore, did you feel like you did? Is that what made you like want to attempt like going forward in this record setting way? Initially, yes. Um, And I talk about it in Mud Rocks Blazes where the very next summer I go out and I attempt to set an FKT because I feel like, well, you know, I obviously, well, this is what I do now, I guess I have to set records. And if I don't set records, I have no identity because, you know, basically I've been told that who I was before I set a record didn't matter, wasn't enough. So if I don't set any more records, then I'm, I'm never going to be anything like I have to continue this, you know, and, and my personality is very much like, you know, from a very young age, always wanting to make other people happy, a people pleaser, like 
trying to do it right. You know, that's like my husband last week. So I'm always like, I just want to do it right. You know, and that's like always my you know thing. And, and so I wanted to do it right. I wanted to, okay, well, like, so this is my new identity. I'm, I'm an FKT setter. I'm going to go set FKTs. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to do that because I need to do that. I need to, you know, do what's next. I need to keep doing bigger and better and more. And, um, obviously that I, I worked through that to the point where it's no longer, that's not my driving force anymore, but yeah, very much initially I believed what people were telling me and adopted it for myself. Yeah. It's almost like taking an identity too far potentially. So, so you just mentioned it's the summer after you set your sights on the speed record for the John Muir trail for folks who aren't familiar. That's a super beautiful and challenging, what, 211 mile trail Mm -hmm. through the high Sierras, something like that. Um, and so you just spoke a little bit about, you know, the motivations for that, that feeling like I need to prove something to other people in a nutshell, will you share what happened on that attempt? Yeah. So I was out there, I was attempting to prove something to other people, but I was also attempting to prove something to myself because what I didn't realize at the time, and I didn't even know there was a name for it until much more recently, um, I had begun to, out of this whole mental, like, kind of resorting and, and confusion that followed my PCT record, I'd started to develop imposter syndrome and began to believe that, like, my PCT record was an accident because. I didn't see how it was possible that I did it. And I saw how astonished people were that I had done it. And like that, you know, people were like, well, there was nothing about her that indicated she could do that. And then she did. And so I started really believing that, well, then this was, must've been an accident and like, there's no way that I could have done that. And so not only do I feel like I owe people another FKT, but now like I must set another FKT because if I don't, then it was an accident. Like I can't repeat history. Then clearly this was just a fluke. And, you know, uh, so that was, you know, all in my head when I went out there to try to set the FKT on, on the John Muir trail. And, and in the end I didn't set it. And that ended up being, um, a huge mind trip. And I, I really just like walked away from long distance hiking and was like, well, you know, I switched to a completely different sport. I was like, well, I just, I guess that was a fluke and I need to go do something else with my life because obviously like everybody was right. Like that, that wasn't enough and I'm not enough and I got to do something else now. You said that you have since learned more about imposter syndrome. Will you talk about that a little bit more? Like how... What's my what's my question here? Because I think that imposter syndrome is something that we talk about a lot or hear about a lot, right? It's sort of like in the lexicon now. Mm-hmm. Um, what was it like for you to learn, like, oh, this is an actual thing? I'm not the only one who's feeling this way. Yeah, I actually learned that it had a name and that it was a real, you know, clinical, like, common experience while I was writing Mud Rocks Blazes because, you know, you know, when you're writing a book and you're, you're looking up details about things and, you know, whatever, like I was just doing Google searches and somehow I stumbled across it and I started reading it or I watched a YouTube video or something and it all just suddenly clicked. I was like, Oh my God, that is exactly what I was dealing with. And I had no idea. And I didn't think that anybody else had ever experienced that. I I really truly believed like that I, had accidentally set this record I wasn't you know good enough that like it was a complete accident and that I was an imposter you know and I remember saying that to um someone close to me 
back, you know, the year or so after I had set my PCT record when I was going to compete at the Barkley Marathon, which is this really challenging ultra marathon in Tennessee. And I remember saying to somebody like, you know, like, I'm worried that people are just going to find out that I don't belong here, you know, that I'm not really good enough to be here with these other elite ultramarathoners from around the world. And, you know, I really 100% believed I wasn't good enough. And it was really just like, I mean, I had already dealt with it. So it was kind of like uh, anticlimactic when I found out that it was a real thing because I had already dealt with it personally and come to terms with the fact that I had been just in my own head and it was not true. But to realize that I wasn't alone in it, and it made me very much more determined to make that part of when I talked about my book, like to talk about this is what it is and this is how it can present. And this is what I experienced. And like, you know, like, so other people aren't just like thinking that they're all alone out there in that. Yeah. Cause it's got to feel really isolating Mm -hmm. to feel like, oh my gosh, you know, if, if you feel like you're an imposter and that you don't belong there, it's like the waiting for the other shoe to drop. Oh gosh, like what's going to happen when other people find out that I, you know, am a fake or a failure or that I, you know, like we just, it, it can be really lonely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, in a lot of ways, like that was why, like, I just, after I failed to set that John Muir trial record, I, I just started climbing mountains instead of hiking or, or running. I mean, I still did that kind of a little bit, but I was just like, well, I'm done. I'm not doing that anymore because sooner or later, you know, or at least, you know, it's more like, and now everybody knows like that I clearly was an imposter. Like this isn't me, you know. It, it's sad too, that feeling of, we set up this paradigm for ourselves where if I can't be the best, whatever that, I don't know, whatever that means, whatever that looks like, then I might as well just quit the whole thing entirely. Mm-hmm. Like there's, we don't, I don't know, it, it's really relatable and obviously not your specific experience, um, you know, this like level of FKT, but just that feeling of if I can't do it right, if I'm not, you know, the good girl, the good hiker, the good whatever, and it doesn't look a certain way, then I might as well just quit. There's, I don't know, that like really all or nothing mindset is feels very relatable to me. Right. Yeah. Okay. So you come home from the JMT where you literally, like in all seriousness, almost run yourself to death out there. You sworn off record attempts. And like you said, you're getting into a different sport, but some time goes by and you eventually decide to try for the Appalachian Trail record. How did that decision feel different from essentially what you were trying to get away from by thinking you were quitting the sport? Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, from my, when I set out to do the Pacific Crash Trail record, I wasn't certain that I could do it. I, you know, in fact, I was confident I couldn't do it. But yeah, I felt this compulsion that I needed to try and I had to try with everything I had to do it, you know, and, and I can't explain that. It's just something that happened to me. And, you know, we like to label things, but there's no labeling it. It was a compulsion that came seemingly from outside me, um, but probably more likely from the deepest part of me. And so going to the AT was very similar. I just had this feeling that I needed to do it for myself because I realized that I didn't want to live my life believing that I wasn't enough and believing that I was an imposter and believing that the PCT was the only noteworthy thing that I would ever do in my life and that I needed to go out and basically, you know, deal with my own demons so to speak, 
in the best place that I know how personally, and that's in the woods. It's on a long trail. Um, you know, being out there is where I get clarity of mind. And I had gone to the PCTFKT. Similarly, you know, my life prior to that had really just completely come apart. And so I went out there because I was like, well, that failed and I need to figure out what I need to do next, you know? And so, you know, I kind of went there with that idea of like, all right, this is the best place I know to get clarity and figure it out. And so I went to the AT very much in a similar manner, like feeling compelled that I needed to go there to figure things out, to understand what I had been through on the PCT and on the John Muir Trail and to sort out what I wanted to do with what I had done, essentially taking, you know, this, this, you know, paradigm shift of how I viewed myself, you know, when I, when I finished the Pacific Crest Trail FKT, all of a sudden I was like, I had learned to accept myself and I had learned to be okay with that. And yet, like, obviously pursuing FKTs all the time wasn't really the answer I had thought that it was. So I needed to go and figure out what I needed to do with what I had learned out on the PCT. And so it was a, it's a weird, a weird mindset to be in, to feel like you're going to do something that you don't want to do. That's not even actually, it's not even that you don't want to do it. It's just, it's going to be something that's tremendously difficult, but you're not sure you can succeed at, and you're not sure why you want to do it, but you know, you have to do it. It's a a very complex uh, frame of mind. And um, it was very similar for both the PCT and the AT. Yeah, that that totally makes sense. It's almost interesting hearing you talk about how the coping mechanism, like that hiking and being in the mountains as a coping mechanism for you to get clarity and figure stuff out, that in quitting hiking, you lost the thing that helps you figure out maybe why you quit hiking. <laughs> Does that make sense? It's like this, yeah. this funny little like loop almost. Yeah, it was really, yeah, it was really weird. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, when you, it's like that's your coping mechanism, that's your way of solving things. And then you're like, well, I'm just not going to do that. It doesn't really work. And I think that's, you know, in- instinctively what I knew too. I had to go back to the trail because that's really, you know, where my heart is and, and what I love. So I had to go back. It's it almost sounds like you were going back partially to reclaim it for yourself, too, Mm -hmm. that, okay you had felt like an imposter. People had told you that your hiking has to mean X, Y or Z and to be able to be like, hang on, this is a thing that I loved long before anyone publicly knew that I was doing it. Is there a way to potentially get back to that and have both of those things? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that was a big part of it for sure. I I very much. Uh, I guess like part of the re- part of the thing when I failed to set that John Muir trail record, I basically was just like, well, screw it. You know, like obviously I was a imposter and I was a fake and, you know, I guess I don't care what anybody else thinks. And now I don't owe them anything, you know, really, because like I, I tried and I failed. So now I'm doing this for me. It's, it's my thing. And, you know, hiking has always been my thing and it will always be my thing beyond an FKT and, you know, I'm going to go hike how I want to hike. And right now I want to do this thing. And yeah, very much taking it back for myself and, and not worrying as much about whether I was doing it right. Yeah. Something that I think about a lot is my tendency to almost preemptively let myself off the hook or preemptively quit things out of a place of self-protection. And so, and sometimes that's absolutely the right choice, right? Like it sounds like when you you know, wanted to step away from hiking and tell yourself, okay, I'm going to pivot into this other sport. Whatever part of you needed to be protected by doing that 
was sounds like that was a self-care thing to do. It doesn't make it the wrong thing. But I do sometimes think about like, mm, am I getting rid of this thing or quitting this thing or letting myself off the hook for this thing almost too soon or potentially even not for the right reasons? And sometimes we don't know that until retrospect, I guess. Right. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So you go out on the AT. Can you share maybe one or two specific things that you learned from the previous, you know, both successful and uh, not FKTs that changed how you planned, prepped for, and approached this trail? Yeah. I mean, the biggest thing really was nutrition. And I, I talk about it a little bit in the book, but when I went into the PCT hike um, to that FKT, I was very sick. And, um, nobody knew it was wrong with me. I had gone to a lot of specialists and doctors and done a bunch of tests and, and basically I was really low on a lot of nutrients and I was very anemic, um, really low on my vitamin B and my, you know, other things. And I just wasn't healthy and I didn't know why. And I, I also was injured. I had gotten an injury running and it wasn't until a year and a half after that, really, it was um, it was after that John Muir trail attempt even that I re- I found out what was wrong with me, and I I finally found out that I was gluten intolerant. And of course, as soon as I found that out, it all made so much sense. It was like because when you're gluten intolerant, like you have problems absorbing vitamins, you know. But like I had been feeding myself, you know, the standard hiker tortillas and crackers and cookies and you know just all this like wheat, and so I've been making myself sicker and sicker and sicker even while attempting to push myself to the like hardest limits I had ever pushed myself. So just armed with that knowledge going into the AT, I was just so much healthier. You know, I had, I had had a chance to like heal up and get all of my um, nutrient levels back up. And, you know, my resupply boxes then were full of food that nourished me instead of made me sicker. And so that was probably the biggest thing you know that I learned that was better on the AT from those previous hikes and on on the other hand you know you also know what you're getting yourself into which I think is actually maybe a little bit of a negative because on the right on the PCT (laughs) I was really blissfully unaware like I knew it was going to be hard but I couldn't imagine how hard and like you know there was always this hope that at some point it was going to get better you know, and it never did, you know, it never got easy. And so going on to the AT, it's like, you just know from the beginning, this is never going to feel easy. And it's going to be hard the whole way. And you know what it feels like to be badly sleep deprived, you know what it feels like to ache from head to toe, you know what it feels like to only sleep a couple of hours and get up and hike, you know, 50 miles, you know, you know, what it's like for real that time. And so it's almost harder to start out knowing the depth of that when it's imaginary, it's a lot easier. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, there is definitely something to be said for that blissful ignorance mm-hmm. as opposed to, oh God, I do sort of know what I'm getting myself into here. Yeah, <laughs> it's really funny. Yeah. So even with that said, I remember reading about the part, I think it was like five days in uh, on the Appalachian Trail into the record attempt when you were off schedule. You were off from where you had planned to be, off from you know where you had expected to be to be. And it seemed like you were struggling with some of the inner critic self-talk, like, wow, like I'm really not capable. I can't do this, which, you know, obviously is is not a super kind thing to say to yourself. And yet it's so relatable. I would love for you to talk about 
what helped you to manage self-doubt and sort of that inner critic specifically on such a punishing journey like this? Definitely, I was still dealing with a lot of the the mental um, baggage of, you know, this this time period after the PCT and John Muir trail hikes and still sort of believing that I'm not good enough. And, you know, in a lot of ways, I'm out there to prove to myself once and for all, are you good enough or are you not? And, you know, I'm a very like all or nothing sort of person. I'm very um, stubborn and I'm very like driven, obviously, you know, you can imagine this. Um, and so like, I'm my own hardest critic always, you know, nobody can ever be harder on me than I am on myself, you know? And, and so of course, you know, in a way that's necessary to push yourself to something at this level. Um, because if you're not, um, it's a very fine line between this like intrinsic motivation and this like internal bullying. And, you know, that was what I had to learn over the course of my AT hike. And that's what I did learn is that I didn't have to be a bully to myself. I didn't have to berate myself to get myself to do hard things because I was very capable of these hard things and recognizing that the balance between those two took 2,189 miles of pushing myself very hard to really learn to balance that. But yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting thing. And you know, I uh, when you're doing something very, very difficult and very, very hard, you know, what I, I try to tell people about, like an FKT of a through hike, it's it's basically just like any other through hike. It's just more intense because instead of taking four months to do something, you're taking two months to do it. And so all of your highs are higher, all of your lows are lower, all of the pain is more painful. You know, all everything, the mental battles are bigger, you know, and so it's just, everything is just more intensified. And so that's definitely a lot of what um, I dealt with out there on the trail. Yeah. What you just said about essentially that bullying yourself not only isn't necessary, but it doesn't work and almost opening up an entirely new, hey, what if I could do the things that I want to do or challenge myself, but not from a place of having to be an asshole to myself or shame myself in order to try to get myself to do this thing? Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah. Which, I mean, I would imagine feels a lot better, right? Like being an asshole to ourselves doesn't feel great. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Will you, I have some more of these kind of like mindset related questions, but I think it would be useful for folks if you will kind of describe a day in the life of this like ATFKT, right? Like, so you wake up at what o'clock and then just kind of take us through what what a day is like. Yeah, sure. Uh, So I woke up on the AT at 4 a.m. and ate uh, breakfast and packed up. And that took me, you know, usually my goal was to do that in 15 minutes. And so usually I was walking between 4.15 and 4.30 every day. And then I would walk until basically I couldn't walk anymore. And and I didn't really take breaks, uh, except like if I had to get water or something, you know, you stopped and get water. And so I tried to let myself have one 15-minute break about halfway through the day. So usually I would try to walk somewhere between 20 and 30 miles. And then take like a 15 minute break and then walk another 20 to 30 miles, uh, depending on the day. And so, yeah, I was routinely walking 15 to 18 hours a day, some days more. 
and then I would find a place to camp, set up my tent, get inside, um, eat food, and pass out, and wake up at 4 a.m. and do it again. Yeah. Yep. That's it. That's the, one of the things that for me has been like a point of relate, like real relatability in reading about your hiking is that you and I seem to be um, hikers who hike around the same pace. And so in my mind, I'm always like, okay, well, in order to do an FKT or this kind of thing, I guess it's just, you're like super, super fast. But I'm like, oh no, no, for you, you just don't stop. Mm -hmm. Like, let me hike 20 to 30 miles and then take a 15 minute break and then continue just hiking until like midnight or one in the morning. Yeah. (laughs) It's so wild. Yeah. You just don't stop. That's the answer, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) How does that an FKT just don't stop? And so you're only sleeping like three or four hours a night. Yeah. Yeah. I would say I averaged about four a night. That sounds horrendous. Congratulations. Yeah, it was terrible, Um, Mm -hmm. especially since I love to sleep. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So, so I guess then that brings me to my next question. I'm interested in your own internal process of deciding when to quit and when to push, right? Because the, one of the quotes that I highlighted in the book, you said, quote, most nights I felt an extreme hopelessness brought on by the bone deep fatigue of the day as I crawled into my sleeping bag, physically destroyed and always short of my goal end quote. So like you're way off your like initially planned mileage schedule almost right from the beginning of that hike. It's so, so hard. You're feeling this extreme hopelessness at the end of the day. How do you decide when to quit and when to keep going? Because it's not like you hadn't quit an FKT attempt before. And so I'm just sort of interested in maybe like what your decision-making process is for yourself. Yeah. I mean, I think that that varies based on circumstance. Um, for me on the John Muir Trail, I quit because I, I knew my life was in danger and that I had to quit. And so I quit. On the AT, you know, it's it's more subtle. Like, of course, you're pushing yourself physically. And, and some would argue that my life was in danger because I was pushing myself so hard. But it wasn't at the same level as it was. You know, I mean, I had very acute mountain sickness on the John Muir Trail. I didn't have something like that on the AT. And so, and like, that's part of where knowing what I was getting myself into from the PCT was actually helpful because I knew that every night when I would, you know, every night was going to be bad. Every night I was going to feel like, why am I doing this? This is awful. And I knew that it was the fatigue and the hunger talking and that when I woke up in the morning, I was going to feel pretty crappy because it was, 4 a.m. and I didn't want to get out of my sleeping bag but once I got going and walked for a while like everything would be positive again and so I knew that that was just the normal cycle of emotion and and I learned that from the PCT so when I could identify that this is the normal cycle of emotion it makes it easier to keep going you know when when you know that this is just like the dip and then in the morning it's going to be better and we're going to do this dip again the next night and the next night and the next night until you get done. Like, that's just the way this is going to go. It makes it a lot easier to accept and to recognize that it's not, there's no reason to quit. You're just experiencing the cycle. Yeah. Right. It's it's just hard. It's like what you were talking about before, sort of the difference between expectations and reality. Like if you're clinging to the expectation or the hope that it's eventually going to get easier, then it's I think you're just continually on that roller coaster as opposed to if you learn to accept that it's not going to get easier, you can stop leeching out energy, like desperately wanting it to be different than it is. Totally. Yeah, 100%. 
Yeah. Which, and I'm, yeah, just like very fascinated by that, that ability to just accept that hard things are hard and stop waiting for them to get easier. (laughs) Sounds like something that was useful for you on this. (laughs) Yeah. So tell us the story um, of the moment that you ripped up your planned mileage schedule that you had fallen behind. Yeah. I mean, so starting out my, my goal to hike the AC, like the Appalachian Trail has a really long history of fastest known times in a lot of different categories. So the the one you mostly hear about is the supported category, and that's what I think a lot of people think of. When they think of FKTs, it's like you've got a crew following you in a van, and they give you food, and they you know you have people pacing you, and you know all you're doing is the movement, and everything else is being done for you, like you're being taken care of by a crew of one or more people. And that's not the style of FKT that I do. My style is, you know, what's called self-supported. It's where, you know, I'm carrying my pack. I'm, I'm going to town buying my own food or picking up my own box. And, you know, I'm completely self-contained and self-reliant. And so in my head, I wanted to know how close or how possible it was to go in this self-contained style, this self-supported style, and what kind of parity you could bring to a supported record because I fully believed that, you know, um, traveling these long distances is, is something very, very human and we're, we're naturally made for that and that there's not necessarily an advantage, especially on a trail like the Appalachian Trail. It's not a runnable trail. Like there's no advantage in being a runner, you know, and having a crew while you run, quote unquote run. Uh, you know, being self-reliant, being able to just eke out a few extra miles each day and not stopping at a road just because that's where your crew can meet you. I feel like that's an advantage. And so um, my goal was to hike it in under 50 days because the record, I think at that time, supported record at the time was like 46. And I felt like it was possible to come close to that record. I felt like it was possible for the self-supported and the supported to be much closer than they, they were. And you know, so that was the schedule I started with and, and retrospectively, and this is just not how I work because I mentioned earlier, I'm just an all in sort of person. And, you know, people have more than once observed, they're like, well, why didn't you like maybe pace yourself a little better or something? And I'm just like, because I don't pace, like I just go. And, you know, I think there is a certain level of wisdom in this idea of like maybe creating like a plan B schedule. And I didn't do that. I didn't have a schedule for just breaking the the self-supported record. I only had, you know, 50 days. That was my schedule because that's basically what I had done on the PCT and, and it actually worked out there to do a 50-day hike. Um, and so, you know, going into the, the AT, obviously, like, you know, everything went wrong from the very moment I started hiking that trail and I was just, you know, losing time constantly and falling further and further and further and further behind this this you know, ideal schedule that I had. And, you know, when I finally experienced this like final setback, you know, I think it was probably like a couple hundred miles into the hike, you know, the, the, maybe a little bit more, maybe 300 miles into the hike. Anyway, early on in the hike, you know, I had, I had all these hurdles and I finally just was like, you know what, I had reached this river that I couldn't cross. It was too high. And I was at that point, like, I really did just think I, I just should quit, you know, I mean, this is the second time like I've been on FKT and it just seems like I can't do it. You know, I need to just like give up now and go home because clearly, you know, whatever it is that I think I need to figure out out here, it's not happening. Like mother nature herself is just saying go home. And 
what I did is I went to bed and then I woke up the next morning and I forded the river and it was almost like unintentional. It was almost like I was like in a daydream. But once I was across the river, I was like, you know what? I don't care about this schedule because I'm out here for me. I, I don't need to prove this to the world. I'm here to prove to myself what I can do. And, you know, of course, I'm going to continue the ethos of the FPT. I'm going to continue to do it in this manner, whether I set a record or not. I simply want to push myself as hard as I can, see what I'm capable of, see what happens, and hopefully sort through all of this mental baggage from prior. And so, you know, this was in the White Mountains of New Hampshire, which they have this little hut system. It's very, like, European, like, alpine. And I walked into the next hut and threw my, you know, took my piece of paper that I had been tracking my mileage and everything on, and I threw it in the trash and walked out. And from then on, I didn't even really know how far I went each day. I just went off of, like, what I knew my body could do like when I reached the point where I felt like my body literally couldn't do anymore if I wanted to hike the next day that was when I stopped and that was how I went through the rest of the hike um, so in a lot of ways it was just a very freeing moment to just feel like you know the schedule doesn't matter what matters is the intent and the execution of doing my best and doing what I can do out here and it sounds like that question you know, have I done my best today, that that became your new metric for evaluation, which I love. And yet I'm also really curious about how you felt like you honestly and objectively determined that for yourself, especially again, when you're so exhausted, like, how do you know what your best really is? Yeah, I mean, it is very subjective. Like there is no, you know, metric that I can measure it by. You know, I really just went by a lot of days. It was just when I when I hiked the Continental Divide Trail in 2006, this is like a kind of a tangent, but bear with me. Back then, it wasn't marked, and you had to carry a lot of maps because, like, people didn't even really have GPS devices. Like, GPSs were new, and so amongst the CDT culture, there was this this phrase, and it was like learning whether you're lost with, you know, all small letters, or whether you're lost with a capital L. And the difference okay. between being lost, small letters, and lost with a capital L is humongous. And you know the difference after you have done that CDT hike. Because, you know, when you're lost with a capital L, you are off your map. You don't know where you are. You can't find any landmarks. And that was the goal, was to never reach lost with a capital L. You could be lost, small L, you're on this map somewhere. Not 100% sure where you are or where the trail is in relation to you, but you know you're on your map. You can at least see landmarks. And in a way, I feel like when I was doing my best every night or every day, that was when I learned to read my body's map, to know when my body was saying, you know, you're lost with small letters or you're lost with capital letters. And my goal was to never reach lost with capital letters. When my body said, you're on the map, but you're approaching the edge of the map, that was when it was time to stop. And that varied from day to day, but that's the kind of the closest analogy I can come up with. It was very much just biofeedback. When my body said, you're done for today, then I was like, okay, we are done for today. 
That's a spectacular analogy. I already know that I'm going to think about that many, many times throughout my life going forward. So thank you for that. Right. Are you are you all caps lost or not? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and like you said, that it involves checking in with yourself. It's like the difference between, you know, shaming, bullying, punishing yourself with outward either expectations or, you know, the the record itself where you're like, well, I have to hike X number of miles today. Otherwise, you know, why am I out here? It's like those types of things can really divorce you from your own body or your that own feedback when you're only relying on sort of like these external metrics. And it sounds like the process you went through was I'm going to throw away the schedule and actually do what I came out here to do, which is do this for me and be more in touch with like how I'm actually feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Which, so how did that feel to make, like emotionally to make that switch? It was just such a relief initially, you know, to just feel like this weight of expectation because it was not only like, you know, the perceived external expectation of others, but it was like this expectation I had put on myself, which was very heavy. And to just be like, well, all right, I guess I can't do the 18 under 50 days, but I don't know what I can do it in and I'm going to find out, you know? And so, being able to just like walk away from that like very precise and, and specific expectation was really freeing and, and and liberating. But you are trading it for this commitment of you are going to push yourself really hard, like to your max, like that is what you're out here to find out. And so like, you know, that was the part that became the challenge was like pushing yourself to the limit you know, regardless of an actual like framework or a, or a schedule, because in some ways when you have a schedule, you're like, I'm doing X, you know, it's like, okay, well, this is what I do today. So it almost sort of makes it hard, easier because it's like, well, I'm just doing what it says, you know, it's like why we make training schedules and we're training for like an ultra marathon or something. Today I have to run this far, you know, and so you just do it. And so, you know, but I think that there was a lot of value, even though it was really hard there was a lot of value in all of a sudden removing that external framework and then just being like, well, now it's up to you. You don't even have a piece of paper telling you what to do. You are doing this for you and it's all on you to motivate yourself to do it. And, you know, when you sit down at, you know, 10 o'clock and you're tired and you don't want to get up and hike five more miles, you can. But like, if you want to find the answer, if you want to push yourself to do your very best, you're going to have to get up and hike those miles. And so there's a lot of internal conversation to push myself forward because I didn't have a piece of paper to do so. Even though it sounds silly to say that it was like a piece of paper that motivates you, but I don't know. I think humans in general, we're very motivated by very little. I mean, how much will we do for like a gold star sticker when we're a child, you know, you know, you, you think we're a child. I'll still do that. Yeah. I still want the gold star stickers, yeah, please. Yeah. Exactly. Or a cookie or whatever, you know, like we, we can be motivated to do a lot for like very little reward. And so just even having just like a piece of paper saying you're supposed to walk 47 miles today, you know, it somehow takes that responsibility load off of you mentally. So removing that altogether actually puts a heavier load on you motivationally. Yeah. Cause you have that decision fatigue too, that if it's just paper says I do this and then I do this, you don't have to think about it, but it put you, what you're describing puts you into that. The question we were just talking about, of like, have I done my best today? And the fact that that is more subjective and it, it's almost like what I'm, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what I'm hearing or what I'm personally taking from what you like specifically just shared is sort of the difference between like, can I be the best versus 
like what is my best. And I think sometimes, especially for people like me, and it sounds like people like you, that can get in that all or nothing mindset, right? Like I'm either the best or I'm not going to do it, or that can like fall into that really binary way of thinking, which is something I <laughs> thank you, therapy. I'm like constantly trying to break out of that like all or nothing mindset, but that it, I often disregard the fact that it is really valuable for me to get the best out of myself, even if that the end result that comes from that isn't impressive to anyone else. Yeah. You talk about what's your why, like knowing your why, like, why are you out here? Like on any through hike, it doesn't, not an FKT, just like, why are you walking 2000 miles? Like you have to know why you're doing it because if you don't have a why, if you don't have a reason, you know, something intrinsic, then you aren't going to succeed. You're going to quit because there's nothing motivating you. And yeah, um, learning to know your why and that your why isn't like, I must be the best or I even at a certain point on this FKT, it was like, I'm not even going to succeed. Like I'm not, there's no way I'm going to set an FKT out here, but I'm going to walk the whole trail. Like I, that's my why. Like I am here to walk from one end to the other, doing my best and see what that is. Like that's the, that's the why that's the base level. That's what I'm doing regardless of, of whether it means I'm the best or even if I'm, you know, anywhere in the rankings of the best, you know, if it takes me, six months well then that's what it's going to take you know and uh yeah learning to shift that mindset was really important so take me to i don't know let's say like the last couple of days of the hike you were just speaking about how maybe the motivations had shifted and changed going into it and then getting rid of the schedule in those last couple of days what did you feel like your biggest driving force was yeah, I mean, definitely by the, the last few days, the driving, the biggest driving force, honestly, was the animal driving force to be done, to sleep, to eat, you know, I mean, it's like, I'd like to say that it was more than that. But at that point, I just wanted to be done, you know, and when you get to within, you know, two days walk of your goal, it's just like, okay, you know, I'm really exhausted. I'm really tired. I'm really hungry. I, you know, I'm really tired of this. I just want to be done and so I think that that gives you kind of this additional like power to it because your body you know knows okay instead of it being like an indeterminate time in the future that we have to do this it's like oh this is actually it's winding down okay we, we don't have to do this many more times let's just give it all we've got and so you know you, you, the last couple of days I actually felt stronger and more powerful than I had you know maybe like a week prior um, but yeah, like the, this driving force to just complete what I set out to do and just sleep and eat was very strong. Yeah, I bet. I bet. So, okay. So the, the other part of the book, I really laughed out loud. So you get to Springer at the Southern Terminus, the AT, the end of your hike. You have absolutely no idea if you've broken the self-supported record or not. Like I, <laughs> I feel like I would have been obsessively checking that the last couple of days. Like, first of all, how were you able to just like let that go and not like, were you tempted to check and didn't let yourself? I, I don't, I, I really like actually like cackle laughed out loud at that. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. So there wasn't a lot of cell phone reception, um, in the Southern AT. Um, so the day before I finished, I think it was the day before, I managed to get cell phone reception from the top of a ridge and I had entered the data into that calculator that I talked about, the online calculator and like, but it was a really crappy connection and like I got an answer and I think I had put in like 
further out because I thought, I don't know, I don't remember what I put in. All I remember is I think I ended up with like 55 days or something in there. And I was like, well, that's wrong. Like the internet's messed up. And, <laughs> and so I just like put my phone away and kept hiking. Like I, I just like was like, oh, I must have hit something wrong. And I didn't want to stop and try to figure it out because I was like, well, that's clearly wrong. That's not right. And like, I don't want to sit here and mess with this. I have hiking to do. And so it was really funny that like then when I got to Springer like the next day and I and I sit down and I'm like, OK, now we're going to put it in and we're going to pay attention. And we're going to type it slowly, you know, because there's all these little toggle buttons you got to do and make sure you're in the right time zone and, you know, the right day and the right year. You know, so there's all these little buttons. And I was like, well, I must have you know, messed it up. So, like I put it in and then I get, you know, like 54 days and I'm just like, no, still did that wrong. And I like, you know, I put it in again. And then like, I text like my partner and I'm like, will you put this in and tell me what it says? You know, like, I just can't like mentally, I can't believe what I've done, you know, because the record was what, 58 days, the self-supported record? Yeah, the self-supported record was 58. And I mean, at a certain point, I was only on pace to, to tie that record um, around the halfway point. I think I was on pace to do yeah, I think I was on pace to do it in 60 days at the halfway point. So I gained like six days, almost six days in the last half of the trail. Uh, That's wild. Yeah, I can just imagine you like sitting there, like you've finished this thing and you're like, oh, fuck, I actually also broke the record and I didn't even know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like I was like, well, I'm probably in the ballpark. Like I probably maybe tied his record, maybe, you know, like I know I did pretty good. I, I know it's less than two months, but not by a lot, you know. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, Tell me about finally calling your mom when you finished. Yeah, I mean, that was the thing, too, that – and I hadn't even thought about it, honestly. Like, it was just, like, so monofocused. You know, and and you asked earlier, like, how I could let go of of the time and not be checking. And and for me, like, because I had shifted this frame of reference from doing – a certain thing to doing my best like it just didn't matter anymore like the only time and when you're sleep deprived and stuff like doing math is hard for me when I'm well rested and fully caffeinated so like doing math while I was on the trail was like just impossible there was no way I was going to do anything complicated and so like at the halfway point I basically was like well I'm on track to do it in 60 days so maybe I can tie his record you know that's basically and then then I just forgot about it I'm like well that's where we're at so just keep pushing and you'll see where you land and it was kind of the same thing with my mom. Like I thought about her so much, but it didn't, I didn't think about when I get done, I can call her. And it was like, you know, I got to the end, I sat there on the mountain and, you know, I had my, my cry. <laughs> and then I was like the moment of realization that I had set this record. And then, you know, the, the top of Springer, you can drive really close, like the parking lot, like 0.1 from the top or 0.9 from the top. And so I had to meet my ride back at the parking lot. And so I got up and I was like, all right, well, time to walk the mile down. And, and then I remembered like, oh, well, I have cell phone reception up here. And it was just like all of a sudden I was just like, I can call my mom now. It was just like sudden like thing. It wasn't like it was something I had been planning. And um, so I called her and uh, she answered the phone. And uh, it was really, um, I don't know, in a way it was probably like, the most important part of the day versus like setting that record. I and mean, there are a lot of important things that happened that day, I guess, but you know, she was, she was talking like she had gone through her therapy and she was able to talk. We actually were able to carry on a, a short conversation and um, yeah, it was just really amazing to be able to talk to her and to, to hear that she had been pushing herself really hard in her therapy and working diligently 
you know, and she said it to me at the time. She was just like, I knew you were going through something hard too. And like, it was Mm -hmm. funny because like, while I was on the trail, there had been all these times where I would just, you know, reminded myself that my mom was going through something that was really hard and it wasn't her choice. And at least like I was choosing to be out there doing something hard. And so like that gave me strength. And so to hear her basically echo that back was like really meaningful and powerful to me. Yeah. That that was a real like bond that you shared and maybe didn't even know that you were each thinking about each other in that way. Yeah. Mm, I think that's a lovely place to start to wrap up. If you could leave folks with one little call to action based on our conversation, maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take, what would you love to invite folks to do? Yeah, the 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 thing that I I hope people do or believe or think when they, you know, like when they close my book or when they finish listening to this podcast what I want them to, to realize is that they are enough just as they are and they don't have to prove themselves to anyone. And that's just really like the reason I wrote this book because I needed somebody to tell me that and I needed to believe it. And I think that that's the key is like recognize that you're enough and believe it. Do whatever it is you need to do to believe that for yourself. Yeah. You don't owe anybody an encore or anything sexy or shiny. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. What is the best place for people to find the book, to find you if they want to say hi? Yeah. So I'm the most active uh, social media wise on Instagram. And my handle there is Anish Hikes, A-N-I-S-H-H-I-K-E-S. And uh, the book is available everywhere. Books are sold. It's um, going to be in paperback, audio, and ebook format. Uh, the best way to support an author is always to purchase it from them. I sell autographed copies um, myself. And uh, you can pick those up. There's a link in my bio on Instagram, or um, you can get it from going to my website, which is anishike.wordpress.com. And I will put uh, that direct book link in the show notes for sure. So people can also just click there from there. Um, Thank you so much for coming and sharing and telling stories. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really happy to do so. Thanks for having me on. And that's our show for today. Our music is by Adam Day, who also handles our sound editing. Thanks, Adam. You're the best. And huge thanks as well to every single member of our Patreon community for making this honest conversation, this entire podcast, and so much of my other work, like my twice-weekly personal essay newsletter called Good Question, possible. Your monthly funding allows me to keep creating resources and gatherings for folks who crave honest conversations, both with themselves and others. And I fully believe that these conversations can change our lives, our relationships, and our world. To join us, just come on over to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. Our community operates on a shame-free sliding scale, so you can feel good about supporting this work from within your own means. So I'll see you over in the Patreon community, yeah? And until next time, I want you to know three things. First, that you are enough. Second, that you are not alone. And third, that I'm totally rooting for you. (laughs) 